Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Grand Challenge lecture and features Professor Cathy Martin, MBE FRS, from the John Innes Centre in the United Kingdom. Professor Cathy Martin is a leading plant biologist and group research leader whose studies examine the relationship between diet and health and how crops can be fortified to improve diets and address the global challenge of escalating chronic disease. Her lecture, recorded on Friday the 19th of October, is entitled Food is about health care, medicine is about sick care, the importance of plants in our diet. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge lecture. Well, thanks very much for, uh, for inviting me to give this fantastic lecture. Uh, the turnout's amazing and I'm a little bit nervous, but <laughs> I'll, I'll try and do my best. I need to start firstly by acknowledging the fellowship, visiting fellowship I got uh, to the University of South, Southern Queensland, so Lindsay Brown and Sunil Panchal, uh, who enabled me to come and spend it's a bit, little bit more than a week uh, here in, in Queensland. And I've been giving talks for, for a while now, but this is the sort of culmination one. So uh, thanks very much, Lindsay, for, for the invitation to come and talk. And uh, yeah, this is my starting slide. And I think that I'm going to point to this side, sorry, but it's easier for me to do it on that one. So I want to start off with this phrase that's floating around on the internet. It's usually used by uh, organic farming cooperatives and, uh, uh, and people promoting kale smoothies and this type of thing. Uh, but I think it's actually quite a imp conceptually important point that we traditionally think of medicines as promoting health, but in fact the really important thing in promoting health is food. Medicine's about treating you when you're sick, but if we want to protect our health, and that's something that we need to do more and more because our diets are getting poorer and poorer, uh, we need to start thinking about the relationship between diet and health. And that's partly because many of the chronic diseases that we're suffering from today in developed societies and also in urbanized societies in developing countries are based about around problems with our food. So that's our food has declined in quality dramatically over the last 30 years, and we need to start paying attention to that because otherwise we will have mounting health costs without a, a solution. So that's basically what I'm going to talk about. But uh, yeah, the import, and I'm going to emphasize, because I'm a plant biologist, I'm going to emphasize the importance of plants in the diet. So. We've known for more than 50 years, basically since the first publications by Doll and Peter, who exposed the importance of tobacco and, its, and the re relationship to ca lung cancer, we've known that fresh fruit and vegetables are healthy in our diet, but, or they are associated with healthier lifestyles. But we often th think about sickness, we think that should be treated with medicine. Now, there is a, a, there's a, a body of opinion that believes we can take the good things out of food and package them up in a pill, and then we can take the pill and that, that will give us the satisfaction, the benefits of uh, a healthy diet. So that's the kind of uh, food supplement medicine, uh, yeah, dialectic, if you like. But 
the role of food in, in protecting from health is quite different from the idea that you intervene with a, a targeted drug that targets a, a particular uh, um, pro physiological process and, and prevents the disease spreading. That doesn't mean to say that you should ignore the diet when you're sick, because we know that uh, food, if you improve your diet once you've been diagnosed and treated with medicines for, for chronic diseases, if you improve your diet, you can improve your outcome as well. So a classic example of this is being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, all too common these days. But if you go to your physician and you, they diagnose type 2 diabetes, they'll put you on metformin to increase your insulin sensitivity, but they'll also tell you to change your diet. And you can reverse the precondition of type 2 diabetes by losing a lot of weight uh, and also by eating a healthier diet, so not so much junk food. So I think it's important to always remember that healthy food or eating a healthy diet can protect you, but it can also improve your outcomes as well. So food is really, really essential to our well-being and our health status. And as we get older and live longer, we need to focus more on, on the food that we eat. So this is all put in the context of uh, an increasing obesity epidemic. So these are data from the United States, but they show the incidence of obesity uh, in the different uh, uh, periods of time since the late 1970s. And you can see that there's a pretty stark uh, or sharp increase, uh, ending up with 50% of the population estimated to be obese, that's with a BMI of greater than 30. Uh, by 2030. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to go back there. And, uh, and that's really quite shocking, uh, that the, those figures. So what is it that has caused this epi obesity epidemic? It's been a, aligned in high-profile uh, publications in Nature to the advent of high-fructose corn syrup beverages in the US. And I think that that may be part of the association, but I think actually it's a policy change that occurred in the mid-1970s mid in the US that's most important in thinking about uh, how this obesity epidemic uh, was initiated. And at this time, Richard Nixon was very worried about an increasing rise in food prices, and he thought that he would lose his political standing uh, because the price of food was increasing. So he abolished agricultural subsidies and told uh, US agronomy, uh, farmers basically that they had to drop the price of food. And that meant that the diversity of products that were grown before that as part of agriculture and part for the diet changed dramatically. And so the, it, there was a focus on corn and soya and the processed products that come from corn and soya. So that was the advent of junk food and it's what we are all now eating. And that, I think, is the major cause of, uh, of the obesity epidemic, this decline in the nutritional value of what is available uh, and at low cost. So um, we often think about food security and this being a grand challenge. Uh, this is a data from the United States as well, listing uh, the food insecure states. You tend not to think of food insecurity in the US, but you can see from these data here that there are a number of 
states that are darkly coloured, representing high levels of food insecurity. I'll show in a minute that it's not a lack of calories here. It says limited access to food, but in fact it's limited access to nutritious food. Because if you look at the same map of obesity in the US, those same states that are listed as food insecure are also the areas where you have the highest levels of obesity. So Mississippi uh, has more than 35% now of its population with a BMI uh, being clinically obese, and uh, it was the state with the highest level of food insecurity. And coming with obesity is the uh, high index of uh, chronic disease. This is a Malkin Institute chronic disease index, but red means bad, that means high, and uh, green and Green means uh, low. So obesity has accompanying high, low, high risk of chronic diseases, type 2 diabetes, cancer, um, and uh, respiratory diseases, cardiovascular diseases. We've talked, I've talked about the United States. The rest of us are not far behind. So although the US has the highest levels of obesity, uh, United Kingdom is here at 26.9% of the population and Australia is actually slightly higher, 27.9%. And that was in 2015, percentage clinically obese. And there's an evolutionary argument that underpins these types of problems and, and that is that we evolved to eat a certain type of diet. We evolved, so our genomes evolved when we were hunter-gatherers. And that is the environment, so that is a dietary environment that we evolved to, to so yeah, we evolved to be hunter-gatherers. So our diet then was very different from our diet now. And we've moved from uh, eating high levels of plants. I haven't listed plants hit consumption here, but I have listed vitamin C and vitamin E, which are two vitamins that come exclusively from plants. And you can see that the relative consumption has tailed off. We've increased the, our consumption of total fat and saturated fats. And for the last 100 years, we've eaten really very bad trans fats, which are hydrogenated uh, plant vegetable oils. We were told in the 1960s that, that trans fats were good for us and that we should eat margarines rather than butter. And yet they are associated with a very high risk of uh, sudden cardiac arrest. So things are being done about it now, but I think that it's a fair argument to say that the, uh, the change in our diet has produced an evolutionary discordance, and so we're not actually equipped to deal very well with the types of diet that we are eating now, and that's why a lot of disease comes about from obesity. So this is a common uh, view of what our evolutionary trajectory on the internet, uh, and um, yeah, fueled perhaps by junk foods. And there's also a, a, a view that we should go back <laughs> because we messed up. I don't think that anyone that's a realistic, realistic about the problems of food and nutritional security would suggest that we should go back to being hunter-gatherers. Although the, voted five years running, the best restaurant in the world is Noma in Copenhagen, which is a foraging restaurant. So the Paleolithic diet, the idea that we should go back to a, the diets of our ancestors is quite prevalent, and you'll find it a lot on, on the internet. However, what I do think is uh, a possibility is that we should look back at the diets of our ancestors and uh, learn lessons from what they ate in 
in that that might be more so yeah more to, more appropriate for what we should eat now to protect our health just some data to support that is the this is the data from the UK which lists from 150,000 men 150,000 women the biggest risk factors uh, for all types of cancer and for men the second biggest risk factor second only to tobacco the second biggest risk factor for all types of cancer is a lack of fruit and vegetables in the diet for women it's only the fifth biggest risk factor after sunbeds and exposure to sun and I like to think that that actually women are smarter than men and they eat more fruit <laughs> so, I've shown here um, a representation a modern day representation of a, a paleolithic diet so uh, this is a diet which I, I mean it's only a modern day representation so it has some things that probably wouldn't have been there like potatoes but you can see that the predominant uh, feature of these diets was uh, rich in fruit and vegetables these are down here are nuts they're not cereal so it's low, relatively low in carbohydrate wild lean meat and fish so relatively low in fats and in contrast um, is shown here the modern Western diet uh, and I have put in a token tomato in the hope that one might get one tiny contribution from a fruit or vegetable uh, in the form of pizza topping or ketchup if, if not in a Big Mac um, the other thing that's quite important about this type of diet is that it's highly addictive and so it's based on refined sugars and fats large amounts of them very low in fruit and vegetables and kids love it and once you get a taste for that you're never going to go back to the other type and that's really a big concern so what do you do about uh, trying to get people to eat more uh, fruit and vegetables well the idea is you have a public information campaign and uh, this is the pub results of the five a day campaign uh, which started in 1985 millions of dollars spent on trying to persuade people <laughs> to eat five more than five or more fruit helpings of fruit and vegetables a day and it's pretty close to a zero change I think and it shows that public information campaigns really don't work there has to be another way uh, to, to try and persuade people and maybe me doing talks like this is one way but uh, uh, I mean just I think people find the the objectives of five a day unattainable uh, or they're like me and they think oh, I've done it for a week that's okay but it's a lifelong uh, change that you have to make so I'm going to give you a little bit of data here on uh, the very earliest indications that um, compounds from or yeah compounds from fruit and vegetables were uh, were good for your health and this came the very first kind of reports came from the Leon diet study uh, um, Renault and Delorgeril uh, who published uh, uh, data on the re relationship between dairy fat consumption and coronary heart disease uh, yeah mortality from coronary heart disease uh, on a national basis and you can see that there's pretty much a straight line uh, between the levels of consumption of dairy fat those on the Mediterranean diet down here uh, having uh, about 50% of the mortality from coronary heart disease from the Nordic countries up here that eat high levels of dairy fat of course these uh, researchers were French and uh, they were particularly interested in this point down here 
uh, which uh, was for France, uh, which lay off the line. So they ate quite a lot of dairy fat, but they, did, they had the, the lower mortality rate from uh, coronary heart disease. So this became known as the French paradox. And don't look it up on the internet because you'll get into all sorts of sites that you don't want to know about. <laughs> OK, but the French paradox says that despite eating four times more butter, having higher blood cholesterol, higher blood pressure, and every day eating delicious foods like cassoulet, then uh, the French have only 30% of the heart attack rate of Americans. And this, I think, has been borne out uh, over time. And after a lot of debate about what the active, well, what, what, what the key fact was, prompted by the audience, <laughs> it was not the way the French people make love, but <laughs> the fact that they drink moderate amounts of, uh, uh, of red wine with, with, with their food. So uh, a long time it was actually thought that it was the alcohol consumption that was cardioprotective but white wine doesn't have the same effects. And I think even Michel de Logerel, who I worked with for a number of years, now believes that it might be actually the polyphenols in the red wine, resveratrol, flavanols, and uh, epigallocatechin gallate, and some anthocyanins as well for red wine that might be the most potent uh, cardioprotective uh, aspect of red wine consumption. So I'll talk about polyphenols in a minute, but at this point I could say, well, I've told you how, the, how you can improve your health. You can drink red wine and uh, you can all go home and that's the end of the story. And it wouldn't be quite true. And this, I'm going to show here my favorite data set in all the world. It comes from a French wine manufacturer's website. It's written in French, so JY will appreciate it, but I can translate it for you. And it plots the likelihood of dying between the ages of 30 and 79 years old against the number of glasses of red wine that you drink a day. <laughs> and you can see remarkably that if you plot, if you drink no red wine, and that's your likelihood of dying between these ages is plotted as one, to one to two glasses of red wine, and it drops a remarkable 40% less likely to die between these ages. And really encouraging news is that if you drink three to five glasses of wine a day, it drops to 50% less likely to die. The problem is this side of the, <laughs> the uh, curve, it doesn't say why the uh, mortality rate goes up when you drink six to 10 glasses of wine a day, but I suspect <laughs> fights and, and car crashes and uh, all sorts of other problems kick in. But this is called the J-curve, and it says that you can have too much of a good thing. And one of the things that we've been trying to do <laughs> is to try and find other sources of the polyphenols in red wine <laughs> so that you don't have to suffer the bad effects <laughs> of too excess red wine. I'm not saying that you should replace it altogether, but just you might want to, if you want to top up, perhaps not more red wine is a good thing. There are many uh, fruit and vegetables that uh, confer anthocyanins, which are one of the polyphenols in, in red wine that are thought to be heart protective. One of the problems with these is that they tend, they tend to be things like uh, super fruits, you know, blueberries and blackberries, and you quite often consume those with high levels of sugar. And unfortunately, if you eat the anthocyanin-rich foods, 
along with sugar, you undo many of the beneficial effects, especially uh, in terms of uh, reduction of, in obesity, which can be a, 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 an outcome from high anthocyanin consumption. So this is where the experimental part comes in. About 15 years ago now, we uh, thought that it would be good to uh, test the health benefits of um, high anthocyanins. And we wanted to make, we wanted to compare anthocyanin consumption to a, in a food and compare it to something that didn't have any anthocyanins, exactly the same food. So I call that technically an isogenic food, one that makes anthocyanins and one that doesn't. And we used tomato to do this because tomato, although it's red, it doesn't contain any uh, flavonoid pigments. It, it's uh, actually pretty low in flavonoids. Uh, so no anthocyanins in there. And we were able to transform it relatively easily using genetic modification by expressing two genes that encode transcription factors that switch on the pathway for making those pigments. And we did it in a fruit-specific manner. So we used a, a, a promoter a, to drive the gene expression, which was from tomato, and it's induced just at the time that the tomato starts to ripen. So uh, this was designed so that we would make anthocyanins in the fruit, but we wouldn't have any yield penalty. And this was the result of those experiments. So we couldn't actually tell that the experiment had worked until the fruit started to ripen. And then they looked perfectly normal. I should say this is a miniature tomato plant, so it looks a bit strange. But you only saw them that it had worked when you saw the fruit becoming purple. And we had various lines that uh, produced anthocyanins, but this line N was our very best line, and we were able to compare that nutritionally to a wild-type control. So oh, this is the uh, purple tomatoes cut through, so you can see how beautiful they are, as well as being a, a great nutritional uh, intervention, because you compare the purple tomatoes with the red tomatoes. And the experiment that we did to test if there were any nutritional benefits from eating anthocyanins, specifically in foods, was done with mice. It was done with uh, P53 knockout mice. Now, P53 is a tumor suppressor, and it's a lack of this activity uh, that underpins more than 50% of human tumors. So if you have a... If, if you have a, a, a cancer, it's quite likely to have, or it's more than quite likely, it's very likely to have a defective P53 activity. So P53 knockout mice uh, don't all die at the same time. They, some of them live relatively long times, but they all uh, develop soft tissue carcinoma, so a, a like lymphoma. And some of them will live a very short time, but a colony will on average live uh, 100 and 40 days. So this reproducible uh, lifespan of a colony uh, allows you to do quite accurate nutritional interventions. And if you get a def de uh, deflection of the lifespan this direction, it means it's a good thing and it's, it's slowing the rate of cancer progression. And if the nutritional intervention goes this way, it means it's a bad thing and it's encouraging the spread of cancer. So the results that, oh, it was a very linear experiment that we did. So we supplemented rodent pellets at 10% with freeze-dried red tomatoes or freeze-dried purple tomatoes, and then just looked at the lifespan of the animals. 
So these are the results. Uh, the blue line shows uh, the survival of animals on a standard diet, and these were done at the experiments were done at the European Institute of Oncology in Milan, and uh, the, there the animals lived on a standard diet. They lived 140 days. For any tomato growers uh, amongst you, the survival of animals on the red tomato supplemented diet showed really no difference to uh, the survival of animals on the standard diet. The line wobbles a little bit because animal experiments, you always try to reduce the number of animals, and this was a, essentially a control. So there's uh, slightly bigger steps in places because there's a smaller number of animals. But the survival of animals on the purple tomato supplemented diet was quite interesting because even those animals that lived the shortest length of time lived substantially longer uh, than their counterparts on the standard diet. And the uh, numbers are shown here that the average lifespan increased from 142 days to 182 days and the maximum lifespan increased from 211 days to 260 days. And if you do the calculations, that's a 30% increase in the uh, life expectancy of cancer-prone mice. So when I first saw these data, I wasn't very impressed because I'm used to big differences. But actually, if you think about it, it is really quite impressive. A nutritional intervention without any chemotherapy can extend lifespan in mice by 30%. And... Uh, I think that that's very encouraging for the idea that a nutritional intervention can do some good if it's the right type of nutritional intervention. Let's hope that it works in humans, but there is quite a lot of uh, data and gathering data from Lindsay <laughs> amongst others that uh, these types of benefits of nutritional improvement really do work. So how can the doses for a mouse be translated to those for a human diet? A 10% purple tomato for a mouse is about 0.6 milligrams of anthocyanins a day. Uh, and that for humans, that's equivalent to 125 uh, milligrams a day, which is equivalent to about 70 grams of blackberries. They've got to think about 70 grams of blackberries. It's possible, but every day, do you think you'd do it? Expensive, seasonal, it's not going to happen. And I'm not going to say any more about it than... It's two purple tomatoes a day. <laughs> I think they are GMOs, but <laughs> it might be a lot easier to do two tomatoes a day than 70 grams of blackberries. That's the paper that allows the translations. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit more science now. So we used another transcription factor, which came from a Arabidopsis. It's called MIB12, and it switches on the pathway to make uh, flavanols. It's camphorol and quercetin, which had also been uh, described as having some uh, uh, health-promoting properties. We expressed these in tomato under the same fruit-specific promoter. And when we expressed uh, MIB-12 in tomato, we saw a color change as well. This was not because there was reduced lycopene in the tomatoes that made them orange, but because they had so many of the pale yellow-colored flavanols that they appeared orangey rather than red. And uh, if you look at the amounts of flavanols uh, that were being produced in the orange tomatoes, uh, it rose from one milligram per gram dry weight to 100 milligrams of flavanols per gram dry weight. And that's really quite remarkable in terms of engineering metabolism because it means that 10% of the carbon in these tomatoes is a secondary metabolite, these specialized chemicals. 
This transcription factor allows us to get a lot of flux into polyphenol metabolism, and we've used this to try and engineer some other compounds in uh, tomatoes. So the first one I was interested in was a compound called genistin. It's an isoflavone, and these are made almost exclusively by uh, legumes. So um, they're also called phytoestrogens because they look a bit like estradiol, uh, shown here, and some of the, they bind to some of the estrogen receptors. And as a consequence of this, they are often recommended, if not prescribed, for women like me, uh, <laughs> my age, suffering from the, <laughs> the lack of estrogen that comes with menopause. And we get stressed and <laughs> irritable and bothered, and we're off often uh, recommended to have a co to use cosmetics internal or topical applications to deal with a lack of estrogen or uh, we're recommended to uh, consume large amounts of soya products uh, to, to in, as dietary supplements including tofu and soya milk so the advertisements for these products always say that you end up <laughs> like happy and uh, less stressed. I'm not sure that they work very well, but then maybe I never am able to consume enough tofu to, uh, <laughs> to do this. So I thought it would be quite nice to be able to engineer genistin in tomatoes so that it would be an easier, an easier call to make. So to do this, we uh, added a specialized enzyme, which is called isoflavone synthase. And we got that from Lotus Japonicus, and we used MIB-12 that improves the flux into this pathway. And as a result of that, this is the uh, analysis of the tomatoes. This is genistin, shown here. Uh, but you can see that there's another couple of peaks here, which are actually due to uh, flavanols still being made as a result of MIB-12 activity. So in order to improve the level of genistin, we then blocked the uh, production of flavanols using a natural mutant that's available in tomatoes called anthocyanin reduced, get rid of the flavanols and increase the uh, genistin levels. And this worked really quite well. So uh, this is the level of genistin when you just express isoflavone synthase compared to wild type, you can hardly detect it. If you add mid-12, you get about 20-fold uh, increase. And if you block the production of flavanols, you get up to 80 milligrams per gram dry weight, which is about 100 times more uh, than in the very most potent uh, forms of tofu. So we have a, a competitive tomato now for menopausal ladies. <laughs> the other thing that we've engineered in tomato is resveratrol, and uh, this is described by Oprah Winfrey's personal physician as uh, the elixir of life, that <laughs> it will help you lose weight and uh, live forever. Um, not sure that that's right, but it's made just by a few plant species, uh, grape, so it's in red wine, um, blueberries and uh, peanuts are the richest dietary sources. So we added still bean synthase to uh, the tomatoes to make resveratrol and then use MIB-12 uh, yeah, from grape and use MIB-12 to increase the flux. And in this case, uh, we were able to, but just with the still bean synthase, we got about two milligrams per gram dry weight. And with uh, MIB-12, we were able to get up to about... Uh, just above six milligrams per gram dry weight. And that's about a hundredfold higher concentration than in the very best uh, 
red grapes. So again, it was an effective uh, way of engineering dietary uh, resveratrol. So we've ended up with a whole range of tomatoes. Uh, these are the purple ones that I described. Uh, we've got uh, high pelagonidin. Uh, so there's a high delphinidin, high pelagonidin. We've got high flavanol tomatoes, high resveratrol tomatoes, high pigeonistin tomatoes, and we have combinations of uh, anthocyanins and flavanols. And what can we do with all of these tomatoes? Well, I'm going to just describe a little bit of work that we've done on including them in cosmetics, uh, extracting cosmetics. Uh, we can do comparative nutrition, so we can compare in a common food matrix, we can compare the benefits of resveratrol uh, to um, genistin, for example. And uh, we can make biofortified foods, I'll just mention those. And we can make colorants from the colored ones, and we can make improved animal feeds as well. So cosmetics, I've just had a PhD student finish uh, uh, working with Yelena Gravilovich at the University of East Anglia, uh, who's an expert uh, on uh, skin. Uh, and so Erica has been looking at the effects of extracts from regular tomatoes and then high resveratrol uh, tomatoes uh, in uh, skin models for, for therapeutic use of cosmetics. And for this, we use human skin. So these are donated uh, pieces of skin, from, uh, usually from cosme uh, cosmetic reconstruction, often breast reconstruction after breast cancer. But they're spare pieces of skin. And the, humans are they the donors are really, really very generous to let us use them. But it's a wonderful model because you don't use animals. And, and I think they also think that it's quite a good use of the spare bits. Anyway, it's a bit gruesome. <laughs> so, so you take, make a, use a hole punch and you punch out the bits of skin and then you put them into a, a plate, a multi-well plate, and then you can incubate them with various extracts and see whether there's a, any benefits in terms of inflammation in particular. It's what we're interested in. And these are just, uh, these are data showing the uh, repressive effects um, so we're measuring here MMP1, which is a, a matrix metalloprotease, which is an inflammatory marker. In the unstimulated skin, there's a small repression in the expression of this gene uh, by both wild-type tomato and by high-resveratrol tomato. But if you stimulate inf inflammation by adding uh, inflammatory cytokines, uh, interleukin-1 and oncostatin-M, then you see there's a big expression of MMP1, which is suppressed by just wild-type tomato extract and yet further by uh, the high resveratrol tomato extract. Uh, this is uh, MMP9, which is a collagenase. And again, you see the same repressive effect uh, of uh, adding the wild-type tomato extract and then further repression, adding the uh, high resveratrol tomato extract. And finally, uh, MMP12, which is an elastase, you see exactly the same suppression uh, under inflammatory conditions and also under wild-type conditions of the expression of this gene. Now, collagenase and elastase are two enzymes that break down collagen and elastin. Uh, and those get, uh, it's the breakdown of those compounds in the skin that leads to wrinkling and aging. 
And uh, I can show you an ex a very good pictorial example of this, which is uh, of a truck, a Californian truck driver who drove a truck uh, for um, uh, 25 years. And you can see the effect of a photo, dermal photo aging um, on this side, which was exposed to UV, the, wind, the light in the truck, uh, compared to the control, which wasn't exposed to the light. Uh, and it was UVA coming through the window that caused the wrinkling and uh, aging of his skin. So we think part of the, uh, uh, yeah, part of this condition is a high level of elastase on the wrinkled side, so they actually measured this. And the, pro the diagnosis, or at least the, recommend the, the recommended uh, treatment for this guy was that he should use sunblock when he was dri uh, driving in the future, and he should be frequently tested for uh, melanoma and skin cancer. So we think that the high resveratrol extracts, the tomato extracts, which resveratrol itself is a absorbs UV light, so it works as a natural sunblock and also can give rise to suppression of elastase expression, so reduced elastase uh, activity could well be used to uh, treat this type of condition or at least prevent it. So I just want to deal very quickly with comparative nutrition. So this is comparing the benefits of an orange to an apple. And We've done some work on inflammatory bowel disease uh, to try and test the, the benefits. So inflammatory bowel disease includes Crohn's disease and colitis. It results from uh, an aberrant um, resp uh, inflammatory response towards luminal antigens, often, uh, often peptides produced by bacteria in the gut. And this is a horrible picture uh, of an ulcerated colon. Often... Well, usually there is not a good treatment for IBD, and surgery is usually the only effective treatment uh, recommended for sufferers. So the basis of inflammatory bowel disease is that the colonic epithelium, or yeah, the epithelium of the gut, responds to luminal antigens, and they release chemokines and cytokines that stimulate dendritic cells to my, uh, mature and migrate back to, to form the basis of the inflammation in the gut and that uh, inf inflammatory colitis. So we did experiments with our tomato extracts on iso isolated epithelial cells and uh, just very briefly, these are the results. So uh, these are pro-inflammatory cytokines. I hope you can see that for interleukin-6, I think it is here, if you add wild-type tomato extract, there's a small suppression, but if you add high anthocyanin or high flavanol uh, tomato extracts, you get a bigger suppression. For TNF-alpha, there's no effect of the wild-type tomato extract, but there's complete suppression of this inflammatory cytokine uh, by the high anthocyanin or high flavanol uh, treatments. And uh, for interleukin-10, there's no effect, but that interleukin-10 is a regulatory or anti-inflammatory cytokine, so one would be pleased at that result. There's even more data on chemokines as well, showing that the high polyphenol tomato extracts all suppressed uh, the uh, production of inflammatory chemokines in this case. 
So the next experimental approach was to uh, take the tomatoes and add them to uh, the diet, uh, dietary supplement and then see how they uh, are protected against IBD uh, in uh, whole animals, so what is called an in vivo experiment. So the first thing that we measured was that in animals on these um, tomato supplement, high polyphenol tomato supplemented diets, was that there were major changes in the microbiota of the animals in the gut. So these show the different phyla of microbiota uh, in the mouse gut, and anything with a, a, a colored bar above represents uh, a phylum that was enhanced in the composition, but as a result of having polyphenols in the diet. Very briefly, the interpretation of this is that actually the polyphenols are acting as prebiotics. So they are able to stimulate a change in the microbiota of the animal's gut. And this fits in with a lot of modern nutritional theory that suggests that the composition of the microbiota is a major determining force in the propensity to obesity and, uh, and, and uh, other chronic diseases. I'm, looking at to collaborate with a uh, on a project where we're looking at the effect of the microbiota on breast cancer uh, progression in animals so it's really very important um, these are the this are the data shown in slightly more detail what happens with the polyphenols and there are a number of different polyphenols being tested in this experiment but there's an increase in the bacteria deets compared to the firmicutes uh, and you can see that different polyphenol extracts will have a different propensity to change that. So this is the ratio of bacteriodetes to firmicutes. Um, you can also see uh, specific changes in individual uh, uh, genera of, of bacteria. And the best one of all was a, a tomato extract which combined high stilbenoids, high anthocyanins and high flavanols. So there seems to be a, combinat, uh, uh, a synergistic effect between the different polyphenols in promoting the good bacteria. In terms of inflammation, uh, what we saw by feeding animals uh, and inducing uh, IBD in, in the animals on the different diets was we saw that the disease activity index was lowest for those on the high stilbenoids, high anthocyanin and high flavanol uh, diets. So there was a genuine effect uh, in vivo in suppressing the disease activity index, and that's the loss of weight and uh, severity of the disease, simply by changing the diet to include these different combinations of different uh, polyphenols. And for those people that might be uh, still thinking that GMOs are really bad for you, uh, we tested also, the effects of trying to get a non-GM food that might mirror the high stilbenoid, high uh, anthocyanin and high flavanol uh, composition of the food. And we were able to find red grape skin that uh, would suppress the disease. So this is, these are animals fed uh, DSS to induce IBD and then uh, suppressed. They were fed a diet with high red grape skins these are this is the disease activity index of animals on white grape skin, and this is the disease activity index of animals on a standard diet. So you can get non-GM foods that can reproduce the, the suppression of IBD.
but I don't recommend it at home because one tomato is equivalent to 50 bottles of red wine for resveratrol content. And so, and even if you ate the grape skin, it would be one and a half kilos of grape skin to have the equivalent effect of one tomato. So uh, yeah, probably best to use the engineered tomatoes rather than the natural sources. Okay, I want to finish up with just a few comments about trying to do something a little bit more uh, yeah, a bit more penetrating, let's say, than, than just study uh, the tomatoes in terms of their beneficial effects, and that's to try and produce product, uh, a product. So a lot of people say, well, why don't you use natural purple tomatoes? They're available. And this is a natural purple tomato. It's called uh, Sun Black. There's another line that was in, uh, developed in Oregon, which is called uh, Indigo Rose. They re the result of an introgression between two tomato species, and they don't taste very good for that reason. But the production of anthocyanins is very light dependent, so these tomatoes were grown in the UK, where we don't have an awful lot of light, and these uh, tomatoes were grown in Italy, where there's a bit more light. So they're environmentally uh, very sensitive to light in terms of their anthocyanin production. But the most important thing is when you cut them open, then you see that the anthocyanins are only in the skin. So they're not really a very good product for making high anthocyanin uh, tomato pro processed products because you remove the skin uh, in, in processing. And that's in comparison to our purple tomatoes, which have a lot more anthocyanin in them. So uh, biofortified foods, can we, can we do this? Um, is getting a GMO food to market impossible? I mean, a lot of people tell me it's impossible because of the regulatory uh, problems associated with it, but I don't listen to them very much. <laughs> so golden rice, I, now, I believe, is now approved in Australia uh, as a GM food, which is biofortified. And we don't have the kind of money uh, behind our tomato project where we can really go a very expensive sort of Monsanto route to getting uh, approval. So what are we doing? We formed a, a spin-out company. Uh, so this is an academic spin-out company, which is called A Nice Comforting Norfolk Plant Sciences. <laughs> it's supposed to represent a reassuring brand name. But uh, our idea is to produce a purple tomato juice. And the reason for producing a juice is that you remove all the seeds uh, from the product, and that means you can recycle the seeds for replanting. So you can bulk up your seed production from your, from your juice production. And if there's no seeds, then there is no inadvertent environmental release. So in the US, you don't need to get USDA approval for something that doesn't have an environmental impact. So you can grow the... Uh, GM tomatoes in contained greenhouses and produce juice from them. We also did some market research that suggests that um, for those people that do drink tomato juice, they drink it because it's healthy. They perceive it's healthier than drinking sodas. So it's a, not a bad demographic uh, to try and target for uh, a healthier juice. So we did a pilot grow up in Canada a few years ago, and a greenhouse, which is a large commercial greenhouse, produced 2,000 litres of purple juice, and we processed it, and you can do this in a fairly Heath Robinson sort of style. You can buy an Italian processor, and you autoclave all of the uh, 
and the waste products so that there's no uh, inadvertent environmental release. And you can make juice and uh, yeah, there it is. You pasteurize it and it's a reasonable product and it tastes reasonably good. So I think fees economically it's feasible to do it. Um, so what we're doing at the moment is pursuing uh, FDA notification, which will allow us to sell it as a juice product that's registered as safe. It doesn't make any health claims, but it is. it will be confirmed as safe. And as soon as FDA say you've addressed all the questions about uh, safety that we uh, and any concerns we may have, then you can sell it because it's a tomato. And that means that if we wanted to grow it outside, we could, we could do that so long as we grow it as a field trial uh, for USDA. We don't have USDA uh, deregulation, but that's not necessary to produce and sell it in the US. Our other objective is to try and sell it on the internet so that only those people that might want to try it need buy it and that they, we won't have objections to people trying to protest that we're selling something that's uh, toxic or poisonous. So I want to finish by giving you a vision of what I think is a healthy diet of the future, plenty of anthocyanins, but also a wide diversity of fruit and vegetables. And I want to acknowledge the people who've worked on this project with me, Eugenio Butelli, shown there making a purple tomato pasta sauce, uh, which works very well as a pasta negri, a vegetarian pasta negri. So, uh, and Angelo Santino and Aurelia Scarana, who have did all of the IBD work, um, Yang Zhang, who made the MIB-12 tomatoes, and Matt Tomlinson, who also started the IBD work. I've got a lot of people to thank, uh, Italian collaborators in particular, and I have EU project funding to, th uh, to acknowledge. Uh, Jonathan Jones and Eric Ward for uh, company development, and I also want to thank uh, University of Southern Queensland for the visiting fellowship that brought me here. And of course, Plant and Food Research, who kindly paid for my travel on, on the way to uh, the board meeting next week. I want to leave you with a vision of the future. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.